You'll hear argument next in case 18-1048, GE Energy Power Conversion France versus Otukamhu. Mr. Dravoretsky. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. If this case involved a domestic arbitration agreement, GE Energy could enforce it as long as it could satisfy domestic non-signatory enforcement doctrines like equitable estoppel. The question here is whether the New York Convention prohibits that same result for international arbitration agreements. It does not. The Convention is simply silent about enforcement by non-signatories. That silence is consistent with the Convention's design, which sets a floor, not a ceiling, for enforcing arbitration agreements and awards. The Convention says that states must do certain things to promote arbitration. It doesn't say they can't do more than the Convention requires. Moreover, Article 2, the principal provision about arbitration agreements, is especially short. It is not a comprehensive scheme that displaces all sovereign authority to enforce domestic laws about arbitration agreements. All relevant sources of meaning understand the Convention this same way. Other contracting states are close to unanimous that the Convention does not preempt domestic law allowing non-signatory enforcement. The United States, the Restatement, UNCITRAL, and leading commentators agree. And allowing doctrines like equitable estoppel serves the Convention's overriding purpose, to overcome widespread resistance to arbitration. The Eleventh Circuit nevertheless interpreted the definition of agreement in writing to preclude non-signatory enforcement. This Court should not make the United States an outlier by adopting that position. Article 2.2 just specifies the kinds of agreements that states, at a minimum, must recognize. It doesn't limit who can enforce them. Respondents themselves don't defend the Eleventh Circuit's signature-based rule. They concede that all kinds of non-signatory enforcement doctrines, including even some kinds of equitable estoppel, are okay, just not the particular type of equitable estoppel here. That incoherent project of parsing some non-signatory enforcement doctrines from others has no basis in any of the tools of treaty interpretation. Mr. Zabritsky, if if you and I have an agreement to arbitrate. Um, and even if you tell me, you know, I, uh, uh, I, I might have Mr. Hacker do most of the work under it, uh, and uh, I just want to make that clear to you, and then uh, you do hire Mr. Hacker to do all the work in it, uh, he can't be compelled to arbitrate with me if I don't like the quality of his work, right? He's not a signatory to our arbitration agreement. Maybe he doesn't even know about it. But the fact that you and I think, no, you're going to get him to do it, and we think uh, we're going to arbitrate all our disputes, uh, he's not bound to arbitrate. I I think whether he could arbitrate would depend on the domestic doctrine about non-signatory enforcement and on the facts that you've posited, I think, on an equitable estoppel theory, if you were to sue him rather than me, uh, for, for claims that are intertwined with our contract, the contract that you and I have, under an equitable estoppel theory, he could be compelled to arbitrate. That was the same sort of I fact. I thought it was one of the central propositions of our arbitration precedents, that uh, arbitration is based on agreement. And here, somebody who did, never agreed to arbitration is being forced into, ar- into arbitration, even though he has a clear right to take his dispute to court. Arbitration is, of course, a matter of consent, but as long as you and I have a valid arbitration agreement, that, that's the key consent. Then the scope of that arbitration agreement is another question, and that's determined 
in the Chapter 1 context by domestic law. That was the situation the Court faced in Arthur Anderson, and the Court saw no inconsistency between Chapter 1 and an equitable estoppel theory. There was no consent problem with, with remanding for the lower court in Arthur Anderson to consider whether the requirements of equitable estoppel were satisfied to allow a non-signatory to compel arbitration in a domestic context. Well, what, question- if the, what if the, uh, the law of the jurisdiction um, whose law would be chosen permits arbitration without any consent whatsoever? I guess you'd have to say that that's, that's okay, right? Um, that the convention doesn't prevent that. Uh, that's simply not the problem that the convention was trying to solve. The purpose of the convention was to address the problem of under-enforcement of, arb- of arbitration agreements. Um, if there is some country out there or some state uh, that is compelling arbitration in the way that you're describing, the convention doesn't directly deal with that, except perhaps in Article 5, which would provide a public policy backstop for the country in which enforcement of an award is sought to say, we're not enforcing that award because it contravenes our public policy. So you're saying that when the United States entered into the convention and when it then implemented the convention through the FAA, Congress didn't understand arbitration to mean voluntary arbitration? That, you know, uh, my, my question, I guess, is the same as Justice Alito's. It seems odd that Congress would have um, uh, passed the implementing legislation on the view that uh, a- another contracting state could compel arbitration without any consent whatsoever. Justice Kagan, I think this goes to the core question of what the Convention is trying to do. The Convention is trying to set forth minimum standards by which other countries will recognize and enforce arbitration agreements. And to be sure, the Convention does not require any country to recognize forced arbitration, so to speak. Uh, the, The premise of the Convention is that the floor, the minimum that other countries are agreeing to do, is to recognize valid arbitration agreements. By the same token, it doesn't preempt all domestic laws, including theoretically, although there's no evidence that this is a real problem, uh, the kind of forced arbitration that you're positing. In the situation that we have here and in the Chief Justice's hypothetical, there's no question of forced arbitration. There is indisputably a valid arbitration agreement. The only question is, can domestic law supply non-signatory enforcement doctrines uh, in order to allow, again, a non-signatory But, you the question, the fact is, I mean, as you started out very broadly, and suddenly you get worried, are some people who the seller agrees that I'll go to arbitration. I agree with you. Okay. Now, I don't want to go. And it's not against you, it's against him. I didn't agree to that, or did I? Now, I thought this is quite narrow, or could be. What actually I, the seller, did is I agreed, I signed a party and said, I'll go to arbitration, and, but uh, when you use the word seller, which I think maybe it was me, is that right, uh, your opponent, uh, uh, that includes subcontractors in this contract. And by the way, you're a subcontractor, and you were listed. So it isn't exactly involuntary. Or you and I agree, and I say, our contract, including arbitration, is for the benefit of Mr. Johnson, who is a third-party beneficiary for everything, including arbitration. And then the question is, 
can Mr. Johnson bring me in? Say, he didn't sign it. You signed it. Now, can't we decide it on a narrow ground like that by indeed leaving up to the lower court all those questions about it, whether it's really true, whether it really isn't true that a third-party beneficiary can or the person listed in the seller side can, and just say it doesn't limit it to where you're the one who wants to bring me into arbitration. There are well-established legal doctrines. I don't want to make my argument for you. I want you to tell me, quite straightforward, and I'll hear it in a few seconds, is that a possible argument in this case? We just send it back. Yes, Your Honor. The Eleventh Circuit held the Eleventh Circuit held that only the signatories to the arbitration agreement could enforce it, and we, which is no, a fairly basic proposition of law. So, if we're going to send it back to say, well, why don't you see if you can enforce arbitration against somebody who didn't sign the agreement or who wasn't? It's one thing to say, okay, our, your parent company or your subsidiary or whatever, and the fact that you might say or subcontractors doesn't mean that any particular subcontractor wants to arbitrate. So you're going to send it back for — I mean, if someone is going to adopt such a radical proposition, it probably should be us, rather than send it back to the Eleventh Circuit and say, well, if you want to go against all, our, all of our precedents and arbitration, fine. But we're not going to do it. So, Mr. Chief Justice — Not to I, suggest I have a view on this way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think this is contrary to all of this Court's precedents on arbitration. Just the opposite. In Arthur Anderson, the Court remanded for the lower court to consider whether an equitable estoppel theory would allow a non-signatory to compel arbitration. So that's precisely can you, can the — you, can, we, can we understand why respondents — should be equitably stopped. I mean, this case is going in the brief so far in the oral argument on a level once removed from the basic facts on the ground. So what is it in this case that makes the doctrine of equitable estoppel appropriate? Uh, let me make two points on that. One is the point that I think Justice Breyer was making. Um, on these particular facts, GE Energy is defined under the contract as a party. The term parties is defined to include buyer and seller. Seller is defined to include subcontractor. And GE is listed in the contract as one of the subcontractors that the parties contemplated using. And so we are actually a party to the contract, even though we didn't put — even though we didn't ink the contract with our signature. In addition — in, Even though at the time — contract was made, the subcontractors hadn't been picked, so the GE was on a list of potential subcontractors, but was not, in fact, a subcontractor at the time of the arbitration agreement. I don't believe that it had been picked, but there were active and extensive discussions, including with the respondents, about using GE as a subcontractor. So it was certainly contemplated. And if you, if you follow the definitions of seller and, and buyer and seller and parties in the contract, that GE is actually a party to the agreement. Um, as a, on a more doctrinal level in terms of equitable estoppel, Equitable estoppel is a way of inferring consent from conduct. And if the respondents sue us, as they did in this case, on a theory that depends on the duty of care arising out of the contract, they are in essence suing us on the contract. They can't cherry pick 
to invoke the duty of care from the contract, but to avoid their agreement to arbitrate disputes under that contract. Um, that, that would be the doctrinal basis for an equitable estoppel Counsel, and this I, is we're going well down this rabbit hole on whether equitable estoppel applies in this case. But I, I, had, I had proceeded maybe on the mistaken assumption that the question whether equitable estoppel is recognized as a viable theory under the Federal Arbitration Act isn't before us. The only question before us is whether anything in the Convention precludes an argument like that to be made under the Federal Arbitration Act, whether or not it might succeed. Am I, am, but I, am I mistaken? Yeah, that, that's correct, Justice Gorsuch, and I think that goes to Justice Breyer's point as well. The actual question presented here is quite narrow, uh, and that is whether there is anything in the New York Convention that prohibits the application of equitable estoppel. If it exists, without prejudging it, whether it exists. Co- correct. Okay. Mu- and that's much the same as the posture in Arthur Anderson, where the Court sent the case back for the lower courts to determine whether equitable estoppel exists under the applicable law, and if so, whether it could be satisfied. But, Mr. Dvoretsky, that is the question. So let's take a look at Article 2 and specifically the third sentence. Because the third sentence says, the court of a contracting state, and then I'm going to skip some words, shall at the request of one of the parties refer the parties to arbitration. And I have to tell you, I think that the best understanding of the term parties um, looking at the three sentences of Article 2, let's just assume that the best understanding is the parties to the agreement. So this says the parties to the agreement are requesting the arbitration, and that's when the court should refer the arbitration. Now, that raises the question, who's the party? I'm with the Chief Justice. If you're talking about an alter ego or something like that, uh, or a successor in interest, maybe that person counts as a party, even though it's not the signatory. But there's some limit, isn't there, that's imposed by that language of the parties? Justice Kagan, I think the key point is that Article 3 does not say only the parties. In other words, the bare minimum that contracting states agree to do is to refer a case to arbitration if the parties, whether you think that's to the well, agreement Let me read you a few sentences, Mr. Duretsky, and you tell me whether you always have to say shall only when you say shall. If I say federal courts shall have jurisdiction over federal questions, would this statute also permit those courts to exercise jurisdiction over state questions? Uh, no. And, Justice Kagan, I, I I'm going will... to give you one more, just to prove the point. <laughs> shareholders shall appoint two directors to the board. Does that mean shareholders can appoint 20 directors to the board? No. Uh, no. Because shall means shall only in many circumstances, it, right? It depends on context. It does. And, and the context here, based on the purpose of the convention, based on how this convention has been nearly universally understood by contracting states, which is a key factor in this Court's treaty interpretation jurisprudence, is that this, this provision, Article 2.3, like the rest of the convention, is just setting a floor on what contracting states agree to do. So at a minimum, they agree that they should Shall ref- the courts shall refer cases to arbitration when requested by the parties, but not that they shall only do so. You can, of course, come up with examples where shall does mean shall only, but it, do- it doesn't mean that here. Right. And well, it- I guess, so that brings us back to the question that Justice Alito started us off with, because I think that that's relevant to the context in which we're viewing this convention, which is the uh, assumption on the part of the United States Congress when it passed the FAA, and surely the um, 
those who uh, entered into the convention, um, the convention was a matter of — excuse me, that arbitration was a matter of voluntary consent. I mean, so if it's a matter of voluntary consent and everybody thinks that that's what arbitration is, shouldn't we read the parties to be, you know, the parties, nobody else? Um, and again, I would take you back to Arthur Anderson. Certainly under our domestic law, arbitration is generally understood to be a matter of voluntary consent, but the Court saw no issue with an the possibility of an equitable estoppel theory that would allow a non-party to enforce. The Convention does not contain an independent consent requirement. It just doesn't — it just doesn't say that. And it would be inconsistent with its purpose to have that, because, again, the backdrop to the Convention was there was widespread mistrust of arbitration agreements. Agreements were not being enforced. The Convention set out to remedy that problem and to provide for more enforcement of arbitration, not less than that. Moreover — We often know. I'm sorry. Is it, is it necessary to go so far as to say that the Convention says nothing about what the relevant law of, of a particular jurisdiction says about who can um, enforce an arbitration agreement? Or could it say — could it perhaps go beyond strictly the signatories to the agreement and encompass some other non-parties that have a sufficient connect — that have a close connection, as would be the case with somebody who was equitably estopped? If I may answer. Sure. sure. I, I think that's right, and it's not just equitable estoppel. There are a number of non-signatory doctrines, including alter ego and veil piercing, for example, that the other side points to as valid under the Convention, even though those can't be thought of as consensual, just the opposite in alter ego theory and a veil piercing theory are disregarding the, the consent of the parties and holding them to the agreement anyway. Thank you, counsel.